Hello and welcome to the Rugby Post, the podcast that gives you the fans' perspective. I am your host, Josh Matthews, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, Mike Petretta. How are you today, Mike? Good, thank you, mate. How are you doing? You well? Yeah, good, thanks. Having a good week. Um, interested to talk about, obviously, the events of last weekend. But before we get into that, I uh, just wanted to bring up again, we've had another sort of couple of appalling instances really of, of online abuse aimed at uh, people within the within the rugby world. Obviously we had the, the shocking um, abuse of Sonny McLaughlin after the England-Wales game due to her line of questioning, which has led to her coming out and saying that she got into her car in tears. Um, and we've also had the, quite frankly, appalling abuse of Ellis Genge for supposedly not clapping the Welsh players off. Now, once again, I think that we have this platform to denounce these people that do this sort of thing and as far as I'm concerned I'm sure as far as you're concerned these aren't proper rugby fans no not at all and these people are the you know first people to write these responses but I'd love to see I'd, I'd pay good money to see one of these people say that they're gonna kill Ellis Genge to Ellis Genge's face um death threats in any forum should never happen and I know there's a lot of passionate fans out there and sometimes, you know, these passionate fans in the heat of the moment can say stuff, but there's a lasting impact on the person. And I think it's really important for us to really emphasise that, you know, social media has so many applications where it can be great. But on the other side, you know, there's people with real feelings and there's also that inherent risk of like really doing some harm. So be kind to each other, everyone. Yeah, I think the one for me that sort of upset me more was the Sonny McLaughlin one because I think she's actually really, really good at her job. Now, you can choose to disagree with people and you can choose to disagree with her line of questioning. On Saturday, did I think her line of questioning to Owen Farland Jones after the game was appropriate? Maybe not, but I think the interview she did before the game with Owen Farrell was absolutely fantastic and she's there to draw out this sort of information from them so she's going to go down with that line of questioning particularly after England had lost really and if we, we'll talk about the England game obviously a little bit later on but really if you look at that that second half England probably shouldn't have lost that game but they conspired to lose it I think given their disciplinary record um, that's taking nothing away from the Welsh and like I say we'll come on to talk about that in a bit more depth but I think her job is to try and draw out those reactions from the guys after the game. Yeah, agreed. All right, so let's crack on then. So we had obviously two games over the weekend. We started in Rome with Ireland versus Italy. Very, very professional performance by the Irish. You know, I've been quite critical of them in recent weeks, but I think that they went to Rome, they did the job that they needed to, and they've come away with a bonus point win. Yeah, I think doing the job is probably a fair term as well. Obviously, disappointing from from an Italian perspective. I think it highlighted a lot of issues, particularly with our reliance on young Stephen Varney. But listen, credit where credit's due. They they had a game plan. They stuck with it, and ultimately, the far better team on the day one. So I'm, I'm hoping Italy take these two weeks to lick their wounds and start sort of really looking at sort of areas of, of play where it broke down. I think in particular, if I'm just going to dissect ever so slightly, not to call any players out on, on the podcast, we're not about that, but I think Callum Braley was maybe slightly slow at the ruck and against, you know, the forwards, particularly sort of the front three that, that Ireland have at, you know, the breakdown, just you're causing hurt. And yeah, just, just need to highlight some stuff like that. Italy needs some front rowers. Italy need probably a, a better scrum half as replacement. And um, yeah, let's hope that they can put some stuff in play for, for Wales. 
Yeah, and actually, you know, really interestingly, I feel that the Irish back row were absolutely fantastic in that game. I think it was the best performance by a back row unit up until that point in the tournament. I think actually it was eclipsed later in the day by the Welsh performance against, a, you know, a, a, I think it's fair to say a better team um, than, than Ireland were playing. But I think that Roland's standard and Ty Byrne were absolutely outstanding. Ty Byrne, I mean, I, I don't know what, what he's eaten this last few months, but he is become an absolutely fabulous player to watch and probably at the moment one of the players at the tournament Warren Gatlin definitely has some thinking to do um, in terms of his selection obviously there's a number of players and right now you know you're better off probably just flicking heads to tails and seeing sort of who's who's likely to be called up I think it was really nice from my side to see Navidi come back um, obviously I'm a big fan of him but the way he defended particular line out there's um, there's been some really decent analysis on how he kept sort of England at bay, you know, the lineup being their primary attacking platform. And from an English perspective, I thought Billy played exceptionally well. I think that was probably the best performance I saw Billy play up until probably Ireland last year. He loves playing Ireland, that's for sure. But he, he he had a brilliant game and yeah, it's exciting. Obviously, the Six Nations is great, but I think, you know, not to speak just uh, for you, sorry, but I think you know Lions is coming up, and you know if you're a rugby fan, that's something that you look to. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The strength in depth across the back rows in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment is is a sight to behold. Really, you know, there's some real, real strength in depth there. And like you say, Warren Gatland's got some interesting decisions to make. But just bringing it back to the obviously the, the Ireland Italy game for a moment, where do you think Italy got it wrong? Like I said, I think Stephen Varney coming off before play was a massive issue because he provides... You know, just upset the balance of the team. Uh, so yes and no. So I think what it forced England, Italy to do, excuse me, is to play slower ball. And when you're playing slower ball against a forward pack of Ireland's calibre, you're going to get knocked back. What Italy need to do, in my opinion, to compete in the Six Nations and, and, and you know, with some some of the Southern Hemisphere teams is take a similar sort of mould as Japan and play quick ball and not get tied down in the rocks and try and recycle the ball really, really quickly and take it to the, the pacey backs and base their game on speed and agility as opposed to front four. So they need to adopt more of a Southern Hemisphere tactic. Whereas, and, and, that, and that is how they have been playing, particularly against this, England, sorry, Italy played that, that manner, they recycled the ball exceptionally quick. I think there's only a few occasions where they had longer than a two-second ruck. So it works when they get quick ball, but I don't think Callum Braley is that person. You see, it's interesting that you mentioned Japan there because I wonder if Italy could do well at looking at that game in 2015 when they played South Africa and maybe try and model their play, particularly defensively, a little bit more around that. You know, Japan didn't commit many plays to the rough. They didn't compete over the ball. And I wonder if that, you know, we've spoken before that Italy have developed this reputation of giving away too many penalties. But if you're not competing at the breakdown, you can't give penalties away. And then all Japan did was just smothered South Africa with their tackling and forced a mistake. And I wonder if Italy could try and develop a way of playing like that. I actually think that was part of the issue, though. Italy played like that against Ireland, and Ireland were just competing at every ruck. And I think that is sort of part of the issue. But then if you don't have the means to compete, um, you don't have the jacklers, you don't have, you know, the, the furlongs of the world going forward and just smashing holes. And then, you know, furlong comes off and Porter comes on. It's, it's, it's a different... It's, it, it was just a tough day at the office, but it definitely highlights 
where Italy need to improve. And if they can't get the size in um, the front row, they need to find a way of being more dynamic. And like I said, I can see what Italy are trying to do. I can see the quick ball and I can see sort of the intensity when it works. But Callum Braley for me, and again, I don't like pointing out players who I think, because, you know, it doesn't help anyone and I'm part of the problem. But, you know, if you can take it constructively, he just needs to work on getting that ball and out as quickly as possible, play instinctively because he was waiting too long. And maybe it's a communication barrier because his Italian isn't perfect and he can't get people where he wants. But I think, you know, Callum, um, excuse me, Stephen Barney plays incredibly extin- instinctively. We've seen it at Gloucester all season. Yeah, I think Stephen Barney was a huge loss for Italy at the weekend. Just touching on Ireland, I think that's probably their best performance under Andy Farrell. I think, like I mentioned before, I think they were professional. They went there, they did the job that they needed to. I don't think they're the second coming as some Irish fans might have you believe. Um, and I'll probably get a little bit of stick from Irish fans for saying that, but that's just my feeling. I think their big, big game obviously comes against England in a few weeks' time and they'll have a much better indication of where they are when they play England. And actually, if you want me to put in an early bet, I think Ireland will win that game pretty comfortably given what we've seen from England this tournament. It's a difficult one, isn't it? I think Ireland were better, but you can't really tell on that performance. I think if that... Italy went against England the week before. That Italy would have got absolutely smashed. So it's it's difficult, isn't it? And I know you don't want to make excuses because it's it doesn't resolve anything. But I think Italy are looking forward to having a few of their you know key players back. I think probably are missing Minotti. We probably are missing Pelletri. We were definitely definitely missing for um, Saloki that game um, because he turned over. I think sort of four turnovers against England for a prop. Like we need that dynamism. We need those people who have that capability to jackal, particularly now when there's so much emphasis on ruck play and like the dangers of the ruck, having small, powerful props who are able to jackal. That is the future. And I'm really excited that they are looking at that, but it's, it's, it's just difficult against Northern Hemisphere teams to win if you can't, can't compete a set piece. Oh, completely. And I think you and I have had this discussion quite a few times is that Italy's biggest problem, really, when you look at it, is that they can't compete at the set piece. You know, they get absolutely mauled in, in the scrums for want of a better expression. Um, and at the line out, they just don't seem to be able to compete either. And like you say, if you cannot compete at the set piece, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, you're not going to win many games. And that probably stands to reason as to why they've gone on a 30-game losing streak. And it's such a shame, really, because I think there probably was a point, and we spoke about this, I think, on our first podcast, there was a point probably sort of 10 years ago where you looked at that Italian side and you thought, actually, do you know what? They've got something about them here. And actually, they could go on and, and maybe do something, but it just seems like the last five or six years, they've just been stuck. They can't seem to get out of this rut of just losing, and losing becomes a habit, you know, it's, and it's really difficult to break that habit. I think once they do break it, Hopefully, we'll start to see them winning a few more games and they'll become a little bit more competitive. But I don't know how they get to that point where they break that losing streak and start to become competitive again. Yeah, I think, you know, that might be a little bit unfair on the current crop, saying that, you know, it's been 10 years. And I think the current crop are really exciting. And I think actually that echoes with the vast majority of the people who watch rugby. They're, they're quite happy with what's going on obviously last week like I said was a massive setback but ultimately having an average age of like 23 years old and a lot of them are like 19 a lot of them are teenagers playing mate ultimately it's it's a loss it was a bad loss hopefully they take it on the chin and they do something better against Wales because it, it can't really continue like this so 
having that as a lesson learned might might be something that they need because obviously again you know those those vipers on social media ultimately write this spew of hate and you know the players read that and that can affect them one or two ways hopefully they take it the right way and it galvanizes them instead of putting their heads down so you know it is what it is like i said a little bit disappointed in it and hopefully they move on but i definitely see what franco smith's trying to do in terms of how he's trying to play and the current talent in that team there is potential to do relatively well yeah, I think more what I was getting at wasn't necessarily from a player quality standpoint. It was more from that mentality standpoint. Once you're in a losing rut, it's very difficult to get out of it. So whilst I think that, yes, there probably was slight, slightly better quality 10 years ago, I, I don't necessarily think that the quality has dipped that much. I think it, it purely is a mentality thing. And once they break that habit of losing, hopefully they'll become a bit more competitive again. Let's move on to talk about the other game on Saturday and it's probably only one place to begin. Uh, Wales is star man of the tournament. Red card didn't need to show up this uh, weekend, but they've got a new star man in Pascal Williams. Pascal Williams. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting game. So obviously the game was overshadowed by those two decisions right at the start. And I think that's a massive shame because actually from an objective perspective, from a slightly more you know neutral point, it was a really interesting game. It was a really good game. And I think actually there was a lot of good in the game, which, you know, if you guys take the time to look back and I take it, it's quite raw, but, you know, whichever side of the fence that you fall on, those two non-try tries did probably have a bearing in the game. But I also think Wales played really, really well and probably a lot more to take home uh, from both sides than there were, that, than, you know, there was the week before. So definitely something just to sort of take on the chin uh, from my side. But obviously, I'll unleash the Kraken now. What are your thoughts? I think you've probably been looking forward to this all week is me tearing into Pascal Gazer and the England team. But I'm actually not going to do that because I don't think it's fair to do that purely because I don't think that England lost the game because of those two decisions. And I want to make that quite clear to any England and Wales fans out there. England didn't lose that game because of those two decisions in the first half. Yes, it had a bearing on the result, but England lost that game because their discipline wasn't good enough in the last 20 minutes. And I think we need to get that quite clear. At 24-all, there is no way, the way England were playing, they should have gone on to lose that game. They were playing by far the better rugby in that second half and ill-disciplined and stupid individual lapses in that discipline caused them to lose the game any international team will struggle uh with a penalty count over 10 and wasn't england's 14 if i'm wrong if i'm wrong obviously i'm i apologize but i'm pretty sure it was 14 and actually this is the worst start england have ever had in terms of discipline in the history of the six nations just a, a nice little fact for you there and does that really surprise you from what we've seen 41 pen 41 penalties in three games that's um it's uh, something's going wrong. And listen, I, I see a lot of people comment saying, oh, you've got to play on the edge. Look at the All Blacks. The All Blacks got away with it. You can't, you can't compare yourself to the All Blacks if you're giving away 14 penalties a game. It's not the same. It's, it's absolutely not the same. So if you're talking about, oh, you know, you've got to play on the edge to try and win games. Don't. You absolutely don't. Wales didn't. Wales kicked for territory and, and they played rugby in the right position because England allowed the platform to do that. If it was the other way around, England would have won extremely comfortably. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And like I said a couple of minutes ago, I think that given the game at 24 after Ben Young scores that try, there's absolutely no way the way England were playing, they should have gone on to lose that game. At that point, Wales, I think, had 
much better in the first half. But I think second half, England seemed to, in that first 20 minutes of the second half, barring that one moment of lapsing concentration and a stupid penalty, and actually a brilliant piece of awareness from Kieran Hardy to go over and score that try, I thought England actually had started to play pretty well in that second half. And just pure lapse in discipline cost them the game, really. But we probably should talk about the two main decisions from the weekend, starting first with the Josh Adams try. Interestingly enough, as I was watching it in real time, I actually didn't realise what was going on. You see, the camera is purely focused on Gozer and Bigger. And you see that he's called time off. And because we can't see what's going on, you suddenly see him shout time on, Bigger kicks it, and Josh Adams score. And immediately I thought, where's Anthony Watson? You know, how has he missed that one? It's not until half-time and you see the camera that Owen Farrell had called all the players in to have a word. They'd been asked to by Gozer. Then you realise the reason why Anthony Watson was nowhere to be found. The water carriers are still on the pitch. I've heard, interestingly, that there's a chance that Neil Jenkins may have had the tea in his pocket as he was on the pitch. And if the tea's on the pitch, they've got to go for goal. So... I couldn't work out what on earth was going on. I actually think the way that Owen Farrell spoke to the referee after that didn't help his case whatsoever, running over like a petulant child, shouting that you told me to speak to the guys. But there's no way that can be a try, can it? Surely. So I've seen sort of two takes on this. And actually, just just for the record, I, I completely agree with you. I think at the time, I didn't I didn't think that was a try. I actually thought it was just bigger being bigger. Looking back, I can see sort of the other argument that people are having, particularly today, actually. There's a few interesting unseen footage where they actually count the point from when Pascal asks Farrell to speak to the team and from the point of scoring the try. It's like 9.6 seconds. But I think actually what caused time on, Johnny May and Henry Slade run to cover the other wing. And I think because they left the huddle, that was enough for for Pascal to say time time off, and actually, it's it's probably it's unfair from an Italian fan perspective. That was unfair. What transpired on that pitch was unfair, and I can understand sort of the English fans' frustration of that. Yeah, like I say, from an England fan perspective, you know, I didn't really know what had gone on other than that they'd seemingly scored this try of absolutely nowhere. It's not like I say, not until half time that you see exactly what happened. I think that there was evidently a communication breakdown between Owen Farrell and Pascal Gazette. I think Pascal Gazette has got to give better instructions to the captains. So if he's saying, go and have a word with the players, he probably needs to say to them, look, go and have a word with the players. You've got 30 seconds to do it. And if you're not done in 30 seconds, the game's carrying on. And I think that ends it then, because at the moment, it's a bit ambiguous. You're just saying, go and have a word with the players. Well, what does that mean? You know, is that just turn around and go, oi, stop giving away penalties? Or is that calling them and having a huddle? Because that's been called into question as well. Should I file have called every single player in to have a huddle and discuss it? Now, I can see why he did that. I can see why he wanted to speak to all these players. England, at that point, were giving away too many penalties. But I think you take the ambiguity out of it. Pascal Gazer gives a much clearer instruction to Owen Farrell as to exactly what he wants him to do. Do you think the onus is on uh, the ref to do that in terms of, right, you have X amount of time allocated to do. I think the referee is there to give clear instructions. And if you're not giving clear instructions, how can you expect players to follow them in the in the first place? Yeah, it's fair. It's, it's a fair point. I, I suppose the reason I ask is at what point is that causing issues in the game where players who are 
tired etc can utilize it as a strategy just to get a couple of breaths particularly if there's loads of defensive sets at what point would you would would you sort of take it out of the ref's hands and make it sort of compulsory that there's x amount of time allocated to you know have a word with the the rest of the team i don't know maybe you'd look at what they do in american football or american sports where they have timeouts and the referee just calls a timeout and it's a timeout for you to have a word with your players and you've got 30 seconds to do it. And when that 30 seconds is up, this game is continuing and we're not waiting for you. And I think, again, that takes the ambiguity out of it. So Owen Farrell knows, I have got 30 seconds to call these guys in, tell them to stop giving away penalties and then we carry on with the game. And it totally takes that out of it. And I don't think that's an unfair way of doing it. Ultimately, as I've said before, I don't think that that decision or the other one we'll talk about in a moment cost England the game, but I think it was a contributing factor to that. I think it rattled England, I really do, and I think it was a brilliant bit of thinking by Dan Bigger, saying to the referee, tell me when time's back on, tell me when time's back on. And to, to have the awareness to do it, and for Josh Adams to be there to just take that kick and score, I think it's great for Wales, really well thought out. But if we're talking about whether it's fair or not, you know, I had quite a few... Welsh fans who are my friends texting me saying they didn't think it was particularly fair. And I think that's a lot where you've got fans who are objectively, you know, even their own team are scoring that try and they're objectively giving the opinion that they didn't feel it was fair. Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, uh, it's interesting, actually. Have you seen the Owen Farrell, Edinburgh, Saracen scenario where he does exactly the same thing to to let Ash, Ashton, Ash flash in the corner? I haven't. Right. So, again, really interesting. It was uh, Farrell time off same well i say the exactly the same it's not exactly the same in fairness because the ref didn't ask laidlaw to to have a word with the team but laidlaw went to have a word with the team and grouped the whole players up and um as soon as sort of time on came farrell kicked it to the corner and and ashton scored and obviously it's probably the same sort of scenes with with laidlaw and, and the ref ironically well, ironically enough, so it's it's interesting because obviously there, there there must have been an element that this could happen. I don't so, want to split hairs, but I kind of think that the difference there is that, and it's just I am splitting hairs a little bit, but the difference there is that Laidlaw did that of his own volition. He went and called the players and had a word with them. This was an instance where the referee had directly said to Owen Farrell, "Have a word with your team." Yeah, you know, and, and that that's they're different. They are different scenarios, I, and I understand that there are definite similarities there, and both probably a bit naughty. But I think one was done of the volition of the player, and one was done the instruction from the referee, and that's the difference. I think you missed the point. the The point is that Farrell has done it in the past, so he's aware that as soon as time on comes, that could happen. So almost from a point of right, okay, we need to be let's have a word, but we need to be aware that this could happen. He needs to be in a position where. You know, if it is literally a word, like, guys, we need to cut this out, have it and get, get in position as well. So I'm not saying at all that, you know, they're exactly the same like for like. I think, actually, you're right. There is quite sort of a distinct difference in that. But if Laidlaw asks permission to go speak to his players as opposed to being told, I think the outcome is fairly similar. If he's like, can I have a minute to speak to the players and it happens, then there's... Yes, there's a difference because the ref hasn't told him to go speak to the players, but it's still exactly the same outcome. He's still huddled and Farrell used his awareness to, to, to let Ashen score a try. No, I mean, and I don't disagree that the outcomes are the same, you know, and I said in my previous comment that I think both are a bit naughty and it's not something I would like to see, but I think that, there, as I said, that there is a distinct difference there. Just moving on to the second contentious decision, do you feel that, it was a knock-on. Yeah, so at the time, I, I didn't think it was because as far as 
I was aware the ball is still active until it touches either the ground or an opposing player or uh, a teammate. So as far as I was aware, I was like, it's active until the point that he kicks it backwards. But having sort of read the laws and actually it took me, I think, a day to find it, you have to be in control of the ball. So he didn't regather the ball in in my opinion and people like I've seen the argument oh but it's a hill flick but it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't a hill flick it hit his calf as he was running so for me knock on at the time I thought it was a clear as day try in in, in my opinion but again you know I learned something new and uh, I changed my opinion yeah I think for me since I saw it I didn't think it was a try I think unfortunately one of them I probably didn't know why I didn't think it was a try in terms of the laws but what I did know is that on rugby fields up and down the country, if that sort of thing were to occur, it would be given a knock-on probably 100% of the time, which is probably... And the look on Reece Samet's face and Liam Williams' face sort of told the story, really. I think even they themselves felt that it was a knock-on. Um, and I've seen people online saying, oh, it's not a knock-on, it's not a knock-on, you know. And the response to that I've seen, which is a rather interesting one, is that if that is allowed to play on, then what's to stop a player quite literally just running up to an opponent, chucking the ball over his head and just making sure it lands on his foot the other side? It was a knock-on, should have stood. Again, has an impact on the game, ultimately didn't decide the game. We mentioned earlier about the Welsh back row. I think they were absolutely brilliant on Saturday, just playing rugby on a on a different planet. I thought, in fact, I, th- I thought the Welsh pack throughout one to eight were, were out, quite outstanding, actually. They were brilliant at the breakdown. They were brilliant at the set piece. They really seemed to, to get in England's faces and really rattled them. And they forced England to make mistakes. And, you know, England's discipline ultimately cost them. I think, interestingly enough, England are getting better in this tournament. And that was their best performance on Saturday. But it's interesting when you look at the players that are slowly getting better are the ones that haven't had the game time. So it's his usual suspects of JB George, Maro Itoji, Billy Funipola, Owen Farrell. They're the guys that are slowly getting better. And I just wonder if they'd had a run of games up to the tournament and hit the ground running in the tournament, could it have been slightly different for England? Yeah, it's an interesting one with England because I think you're probably right, they didn't have the games in their legs. But I think as well from the other side, they're professional athletes and you know they've been in camp for probably about a month now with the two weeks and they they have time to get themselves in a state of match fitness excuse me so yes I agree you know there's no substitution for for game time but also you know they have to take some responsibility of allowing themselves to slip it that far and I think yes Jamie George's assist to to the try was was beautiful but also you know a lot of the sort of holes in defence come from those Saracens players so there's one in particular I actually watched analysis on it just before we jumped on the call where Luke Cowan Dickey missed the tackle but he missed the tackle because the line speed wasn't wasn't where it needed to be and that's because there was a massive hole next to him left by Atoje. Atoje's on his day the best second row in the world and I can say that candidly as someone fairly objective there's obviously Retallic etc Atoje is the best second row in the world and he had a he had a poor game not because of the discipline etc because some of those you know were 50-50 it really depends on the ref but 
just how he played in the loose was was poor. He just he just it's it's like he had a psychological barrier. It was like he just had a poor game. And I think when your star player is having a poor game, that you know has that catabolic effect on the team. It's like slow. It's it's depleted. You see someone like that sort of have a bad game, and I think it's it starts sapping the energy of the people around you. Yeah, it's interesting you say actually about Mario Toji's penalties sort of being 50-50s or a few of them being 50-50s, but Pascal Williams was always going to give them on Saturday. So, you know, you, unfortunately, you've got to be better than that, particularly when you're playing in Cardiff. Like, Cardiff is such a difficult place to go and play and you've got to be on the money. And England, like you say, giving away 14, 15 penalties, you're not going to win many test matches giving away 14 or 15 penalties. But let's take nothing away from Wales. The slam is on. Are they going to do it? Hmm. It's always France. Um, well, that's the that's the kicker, isn't it? You know, we'll see how France play after COVID gate that they've had in camp. You know, there's been a lot of disruption there. I wonder if Wales going to France, the last game of the competition, I think, is that the last round? I'm fairly certain it is. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. I think Wales have got a very, very good chance of doing the Grand Slam now, as much as it pains me to say it. Do you think... The way France have been playing, if if Wales turn up like they did against England, they would they would win. You think it'd be a close game? I think that's the big question, isn't it? Is whether France can recreate the form that they showed against Ireland and Italy, given the disruption in the camp. I think that's sort of what I'm getting at. Is if France turn up on the day and play like they did against Ireland, it'll be tough for Wales, and that's where I think they'll struggle. But I don't think the disruption that's gone on this last couple of weeks can be underestimated. I think it's a massive, massive thing. So I think that if, you know, Wales were to play France over the next couple of weeks, I think they have a good chance of winning that game, yes. I think their game management is actually a little bit better than France's as well. That's interesting. I actually think France's game management has been brilliant for both games. It has been good, but I think that Wales at the moment, uh, their game management is absolutely outstanding. The the game management is essentially what won them the game against England on, on, on Saturday, isn't it? You know, the way they managed that game, particularly in the last 20 minutes, they made England play out and force a mistake. And I think that, you know, I've been very, very harsh about Wales, but I've been quite impressed with the way that they've played, particularly on Saturday against England. You know, putting 40 points on England is no mean feat. I think the penalty count is what sort of put the nail in the coffin for England. I don't necessarily agree that it was, you know, their game management because I think they kicked when they could kick and they went to the corner when they could go to the corner. But I think any team in the Six Nations would have made the same deduction. Yeah, I think you're right. I think England's discipline obviously ultimately probably cost them the game, like we said before. But I do think that Wales' game management was good. They played the game in the right areas of the field, as we discussed earlier, and they forced some mistakes from England, maybe not towards the end of the game. I think we had three pretty stupid penalties that were given away. And actually, the one that Kieran Hardy's try was a pretty stupid error as well. But they were forcing England to play in those areas of the field to begin with. And I think that Kieran Hardy, Dan Bigger, those guys controlled the game pretty well. Just on that Kieran Hardy try, how was it that there was only two players to react? So you're 15 yards out, given a penalty, surely instinctively everyone should rush back 10. The only player that out of the forwards that even bothered trying was Curry. And was it Daly who tried tackling him at the end? Daly ran away, didn't he? <laughs> Daly was too busy running away and he turned around and didn't realise what was going on. Who was it who 
tried to make the tackle at the end. I think it was Daly in the end, but he was too, he'd not been concentrating. He was running off and then he turned around and seen what had happened and tried to make the tackle and missed. So, so there's two and one, but obviously at pace, you know, a scrummy is agile enough to, to get in to those, but more so like why, why did no one react to that? It was just so sluggish. It was... Do you know what? I think there's an element of naivety there because I don't think that teams expect teams to do that anymore. I actually don't think you see that as often as you used to is scrum halves going quick like that. Certainly not as much as we saw 10 years ago. You know, the likes of Danny Kerr used to do it all the time. And I think there was just a bit of naivety there. You know, they'll chalk, I think they'll chalk it up to that. They'll learn from it next time and I don't think they'll allow it to happen. And they're the sorts of things that you can really easy, easily fix for the game moving forward, can't you? You know, discipline and... Decisions like that are things that can be changed, hopefully, reasonably easily. Although England seems to be making a meal of their discipline. So, dissected the game. We talked about where we think the game was won and lost for both sides. So, obviously, you were, and I think it's fair to say, quite upset um, at the time about the result. And you came up with a fair few ideas about how England can move forward. And obviously, part of the game is sort of learning from your mistakes and having almost that that personal development side to, to understand that you've done wrong and looking forward to, to rectifying that. And I think there was a number of players that you thought didn't perform and maybe, you know, have used up their nine lives. Aside from that, what do you think England need to do to get back to where they were in 20, 2019, 2018? Oh, well, I think they've got, to, for me, they need to overhaul who's playing at the moment. I think there's too many players in there that are, are playing on reputations rather than form. I think Potentially, they need to look at a change in the coaching staff. I think that Eddie Jones, unfortunately, just seems to be going backwards with England. They need something to freshen it up. They need some fresh faces, fresh players, fresh coaches, and try and build towards that 2023 World Cup. If I'm going to, if I'm being blunt about it, you know, obviously we could go into a lot more detail, but I think that's probably better saved for a longer format. But I think for this, the benefit of this discussion, fresh faces in the squad, fresh faces in the coaching staff. Perfect. And I think actually it'd be interesting to get some of the boys on to the next podcast or a podcast. Obviously, it'd be nice to see out the the Six Nations because we don't want to be part of these fickle fans who who change their decision week to week. Um, We want to make an informed decision based on the entire Six Nations. But it'd be good to get some some of our friends on and have a chat about where they think England, where they think England need to go to, to start winning, to start winning full stop. If you want to give us your thoughts on the games of the weekend, I'm particularly interested to hear from Wales fans um, about their winning Cardiff and what they felt the referee was like. So our email address is therugbyposts at gmail.com. And that's it then, mate, for another week. I want to thank you for joining me again. Uh, I've been your host, Josh Matthews, joined by my friend Mike Petretta, and that was rugby. Thank you very much.